This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. We'll start with headlines. Congratulations to all listeners who have campaigned for these climate action headlines today. Number one, New South Wales commits to halving climate pollution this decade. Number two, Xi Jinping says China will not build coal-fired power stations abroad. This was welcomed at the United Nations as China said its $50 billion investment will be used to support other developing countries with green and low carbon energy. Number three, Sydney Morning Herald headline, it's a $50 billion a year export industry. How long until coal's rivers of gold run dry? Four, from Renew Economy, green energy exports could triple the value of fossil fuels. It's a $330 billion green export opportunity there for the taking. In Blockadia, around the world this week, Ukraine. Hundreds join in climate change protests. Germany. Tens of thousands of climate activists descend on German cities to crank up pressure on candidates competing to succeed Angela Merkel. In Prague, Rome, New Delhi and hundreds of other cities, Fridays for Future protesters flooded the square on a global strike for climate. In Australia, this will be October the 16th. Meanwhile, when I looked at the map for the Fridays for Future students and young people all over the world, I zoned in on Borneo. I wondered who could be protesting there. And it said, meet outside my village on Friday, global strike for climate. And the last one is from Ban Ki-moon. It's from an ABC article. Ahead of COP26 in Glasgow, the world wants tougher targets. Ban Ki-moon put it bluntly when he said, Australia is out of step with its own states, its trading partners and other comparable states. Its current goals are insufficient to meet Australia's Paris commitments. So plenty to pressure our government or any of our MPs about considering all of that. If you are writing to Scott Morrison this week, take note that he hasn't made any final decision about attending COP26 yet. He said, I mean, it's another trip overseas and I've been on several this year and I've spent a lot of time in quarantine. Just keep it in mind. We're wanting Australia to represent us at COP26 in Glasgow and not the fossil fuel interests. Today's show is part two of our series On the Road to Glasgow and the message comes through loud and clear. Now is the time to pressure our government. We talked to Professor Rob Eisenberg in Newcastle about becoming a climate voter. He's an ear, nose and throat specialist and a lot of his patients would love it if they could breathe easily. So he says, vote Earth now. And then we talk to Violet Coco and Sasha Steindl from Extinction Rebellion. They tell us how they too are pressuring members of parliament, even in lockdown, and especially to lift their game before COP26 in Glasgow. As Violet says... Yeah. COP26 is, is a farce. I mean, it's the 26th one and it's, we're still plummeting, plummeting towards a trajectory of an uninhabitable earth. 
Finally, Rebecca Burns is with us from the initiative that's gaining momentum globally. It's called the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. She exposes the hypocrisy of some governments going to Glasgow, promising to reduce their home emissions while signing up contracts for new coal, oil and gas. That will take us to perdition. But to get us in the mood, first here's UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson at the United Nations telling us to grow up. My friends, the adolescence of humanity is coming to an end and must come to an end. We're approaching that critical turning point in less than two months, in just over 40 days, when we must show that we are capable of learning and maturing and finally taking responsibility for the destruction we are inflicting, not just upon our planet, but upon ourselves. It's time for humanity to grow up. We are doing such irreversible damage that long before a million years are up, we will have made this beautiful planet effectively uninhabitable, not just for us, but for many other species. And that is why the Glasgow COP26 summit is the turning point for humanity. We must limit the rise in temperatures, whose appalling effects were visible even this summer, to 1.5 degrees. We, we must come together in a collective coming of age. We must show that we have the maturity and wisdom to act. I'm not one of the, those environmentalists, by the way, who takes a, a moral pleasure in excoriating humanity for its excess. I don't see the green movement as a pretext for a wholesale assault on capitalism, far from it. The whole experience of the COVID pandemic is that the way to fix the problem is through science and innovation. We've put in great forests of beautiful wind turbines on the drowned prairies of Doggerland between uh, Britain and Holland uh, in the North Sea. In fact, we produce so much offshore wind that I'm thinking of changing my name in honor of the god of the North Wind to Boreas Johnson. There you go. There's a, a shove in that classical illusion this time of night to see if you're, 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 you're paying attention, folks. And when Kermit the Frog, Kermit the Frog sang, it's not easy being green. I want you to know that he was wrong. He was wrong. It is easy. It's not only easy, it's lucrative and it's right to be green. He was also unnecessarily rude to Miss Piggy, I thought, uh, Kermit the Frog. But it is easy uh, to be green. We have the technology, as we used to say when I was a, when I was a kid. We can do it. We have, so, so in 40 days' time, we have the choice before us. The, the poet Sophocles is often quoted, or often quoted by me anyway, as saying that there are many terrifying things in the world, but none is more terrifying than mankind. And it's certainly true that uh, Sophocles was, was right in that sense, in that our species is uniquely capable of our own destruction and the destruction of everything around us. Uh, but uh, what, what, if you look, look at the Greek, what Sophocles actually said was uh, that man, polita deina kuden anthropu deinotron pele is what he said, which is deinos, man is deinos, and, de and terrifying isn't quite right as a translation for, for deinos. What, what, what Sophocles really means is that mankind is, uh, humanity is awesome. We're both terrifying but also awesome. And I think he was right there. Uh, we have an awesome power to change things, and to change things for the better, and an awesome power to save ourselves. And in the next 40 days, we have to choose, the world has to choose, what kind of awesome we're going to be. Now we're lucky to have some people from Extinction Rebellion, Violet Coco and Sasha Steindl, and they've both been involved, both in the front line and behind the scenes in drawing to our attention the fact that our government has a duty of care. Every minister in the government, they are so privileged to be in government. They're going to be going to Glasgow soon and representing us. We know it'll be possibly 
not effective because they're not effective here. But these people are doing something here to raise the consciousness in Australian voters' minds and Australian citizens' minds to do something a bit beyond politics, um, a bit bigger. And they recently went in Canberra to um, stick themselves onto the environment minister's office. I saw people, in elderly people, beautifully, you know, dignified people were stuck on to the environment minister's office because she is appealing a judgment by the court that said she has a duty of care to children of the future, to next generations. And anyone in Australia can agree that she has that duty, but she doesn't agree. And she has said she'll appeal it. And that's why this must have struck a chord with you. What got you, what was it, was what made you choose that particular awful thing in Australian public life that got you going? Sasha. Uh, well, I think if um, if the Australian government doesn't have the duty of care uh, for its own children, uh, then who does? Uh, you know, it's very clear that the government is not representing its people um, in this in this country. Um, we know that the majority of people in this country, you know, want action on climate change and acknowledge that climate change is an issue here. Um, and people on the front line of um, climate disaster uh, are still suffering from that, uh, and the government is not there to protect them. Um, and, yeah. Yeah, like you said, it's about seeing that if they don't recognise that duty of care, then we have to take up that mantle. And um, it's, you know, particularly shocking I think because a lot of people around my age are connecting over this feeling of being afraid to have children mm -hmm. and um, and so them out and out saying that they're not going to be caring for our children Susan Lay you know really it's it's really outstanding that she would appeal the decision that she has a, a duty of care to young kids and then it's thinking well if I want to have a kid who who is going to be caring for them as we face climate breakdown? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a sense of like uh, of not wanting to bring further generations into what is going to just be a disastrous um, environment for them to, to live in. And as a young person, that's really hard to kind of accept. Um, and, you know, we're also getting comments like, oh, time is ticking. Yeah, well, time is ticking. We don't have all the time in the world and we're running out of it. Um, and unfortunately, everyday people like us are having to step up and do stuff that we don't want to be doing. You know, yeah. we don't want to be doing this type of action. We don't want to be um, breaking this, you know, law that this uh, government has put in place um, it's an unjust law um, and therefore we need to um, stand stand up against it and and uh, with all the love in our hearts just fight for um, the children that do exist and that will be in the in the world yeah and I feel you shouldn't have to do it either but we are Australians and Australia is not a small player in this we keep going to these conferences pretending we're that we're the sort of a good citizen and good citizen in the Pacific and then we're the good citizen in Asia but we are not we are exporting our coal and our government is going around signing up contracts for more coal that will lock countries like Vietnam into 30 years ahead of more coal now gas with the biggest gas exporter and I keep harping on this on the radio but mostly the mainstream media just wants to talk about climate porn in a way they want to just talk about the horrors and the you know the shocking visual images but as soon as the worst of it's over they go away none of them talk about the absolute direct connection we just had hurricane ida in um, louisiana and it couldn't have been more pointed if you'd had a sort of godly arrow saying here are your oil refineries here is the hurricane join the two join the dots and not yeah. one, hardly any of the media there joined the dots between their huge pipelines of oil and their, you know, shocking um, displacement of people because of the hurricanes and fires and now we see. So I think the media don't kind of get it. And so it's up to you. you you're the sort of alternative voices to go under the radar and do these things that get 
I think the burning pram got the media's attention. Uh, are you aware of that, that you're trying to change the public knowledge through media? Not, not just through media, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, though, the largest petition to the Australian federal government is to declare a climate emergency. We don't, we don't really, like, we want to keep it in people's mind that, that climate is an issue because it's easy for them to forget because it's so overwhelming. But mostly we need to be having conversation with our politicians now, you know, and so that is why we're asking people to go to their MP offices and, and to demonstrate there and to demonstrate powerfully um, and there because that is the place where uh, we can continue our voice and, yeah. and do it as one wave. Yeah. I think Greta Thunberg said in a recent session at the Davos Forum, she said, you are acting. She said, you'll go to Glasgow, you will be acting. You think you are, it's not the same thing as taking action. And, and people mm -hmm. can say fine words and pass resolutions, but it's only acting. Uh, and I think what you are doing is the opposite of acting. It's taking action. You know, much like the suffragettes said, what we need now is deeds, not words. Um, I really like the idea of talking about duty of care um, and linking it to the Glasgow because um, what we have is a government who's lobbying internationally within Australia. Australia. Our government is lobbying internationally to not be held accountable to these targets. So the message coming into Glasgow is that it really doesn't matter what they say there because we know that they're going to lobby to not be held accountable anyway. And the yeah. COP26 is, is a farce. I mean, it's the 26th one and it's we're still plummeting towards a trajectory of an uninhabitable earth yeah. at what point are we putting our faith in this talks you know it's it's really a marker of of um of injustice that's happening and and that politics is is just um people playing out what they think they we want to see without actually engaging in their duty of care to to be our voice because Australians yeah. want stronger action on climate you know we want that we all want that but we need strong leadership and we're not okay. seeing that in that going to prison that you've talked about Violet and Leslie talked about it um, some people said to me, oh, that's sort of just one person, you know, just doing this by themselves. And I said, I don't think that's right. So, Sasha, could you tell how the support works? Because for everyone in prison, I think there were quite a team of people outside. What what, what do you do for the people who, who do get arrested? Uh, we have what is called uh, watch house support um, and then court support. And so they are just people who are available um, once people are in custody they're there to kind of wait out the front um, in case they are released or for when they are released. Sasha's often the first hug I get after I come out of the police station. Yeah. She's a good hugger, I can say that. That's a job. It's always nice to have, you know, some fresh fruit um, and some water uh, there for when they when they get out. It's usually been a bit cold in there and, um, yeah, you kind of don't, um, don't get those those privileged kind of things that we take for granted these days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, then showing up for court, um, you know, once again, legal support there uh, as well. Um, and then now, you know, moving into this escalation, uh, we're looking at prison support. Um, and so this is quite a large task um, and takes a lot of like understanding how the prison, that specific prison works, because in Australia, um, I've done it three times now in three different states and it is different every single time. Mm. Um, so getting to know that so that um, the person in prison feels supported and feels a little bit of connection um, yeah. because, yeah, it's not, um, obviously it's not a very nice experience. The um, other thing that Sasha does mm. is she calls all of our partners and family <laughs> and tells them how we're going as well. So that's, you know, it's really appreciated. It does yeah. take a whole community to be a strong, to be strong, you know, yeah. and, and we, we work as a, a beautiful family and team. Yeah. And that's the other thing about our privilege as well is we are so lucky and so grateful to have the community around us that we do. You know, we've travelled to different states. I'm in the third, you know, um, city now that I've done Extinction Rebellion in and there's just such a community around you um, that yeah. that's that's kind of what keeps you going. Yeah. yeah. 
So I'd like to invite listeners to look up the website and just check in with one information session to start with or just tune in somewhere where you can because it's not as crazy as the media portrays it. And I know the media in Britain, for example, you know, they're constantly saying, but oh, the people are getting very upset about the roads being blocked and that sort of thing. And here Murdoch Media has said they won't be against climate change any longer, but that's I'm not holding my breath for them to go right over and put you <laughs> on their front page for the right reason. Um, yeah, but listeners might like to join you, and I think um, it's easy to join, isn't it? It's it's not an ideological group. Could you just tell listeners a little bit like the the main the main things I've noticed about it is the tell the truth and the people's assemblies, the citizens' assemblies, and I've done interviews on both of those things in France and um, other countries where people are having these people's assemblies it's a brilliant way to go beyond politics um but what what are the main kind of it's not an ideology but the main thinking um posts yeah you're you're on the right track so we've got three demands that unite us internationally 87 countries extinction rebellion are in and with the same three demands which is to as you said tell the truth declare a climate and ecological emergency and communicate the urgency for change uh, the second demand is zero out on emissions by 2025, which is basically just at emergency speed as fast as humanly possible, and halt biodiversity loss, because as you know, biodiversity loss is mm. just as scary as the warming itself. And the third demand is, is the most exciting, that is citizens' assemblies, because we know that our politicians have failed us, and so we need a better platform to have the conversation of how we're going to transition. And Citizens' Assembly works like jury duty. There's TED Talks about it. I invite your listeners to also <laughs> look them up because um, it's, it's actually the thing that keeps me going because it, I really see the hope for our future in this change. I do too. And I think we it's not based on hope. It's really courage. What you're showing is courage. You have to have the courage. But I think we can hope because I've lived through a lifetime of many changes. When I look back, I think, how did some terrible changes too, like the Amazon, which I saw young and there was no road through it. And now there's a road through it. And now there 6,000 Indigenous people are protesting in the capital city. So terrible things have changed quickly in my, just a, one person's lifetime. But other things have changed radically that I wouldn't have expected. So it does happen. We just can't see it where we're standing. I don't think we can mm -hmm. worry too much that we can't see it, but we have to make, people think it's unthinkable, but it is thinkable that we can organise global society differently so that this doesn't, the worst of the catastrophe doesn't happen. Um, well, we just definitely. have to. Yeah, we yeah. just have to. Vivian, do you have, do you have grandchildren, Vivian? I don't have grandchildren, no. I have no. children though. You have children. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm sure many of your listeners, though, as well, um, have kids. And I'm yeah, sure. we just want to yeah. say that, like, we are we are courageous, um, and uh, and we're courageous because we really believe that those kids deserve a healthy future. Yes. And that's that gives us a lot of power and a lot of um, responsibility as well to do it right and um, and do it as fast as possible. Yeah. yeah. And if I could also just add that, like, there, there is a lot of um, climate anxiety and despair out there. Um, I definitely suffered from it. Um, but I find that I get, you know, like Greta says, I find hope in action, in taking action yeah. um, and doing something about it. Um, so that's probably my biggest encouragement um mm. if, if you're out there and you're feeling really worried about it and really yeah. isolated it's um finding a community that gets yeah. on gets gets you and gets how you feel about it um and then take action with that team in whatever way that you can can really help your mental health yes super thank you so we've been talking to violet um coco and sasha steindl thank you very much thank, thank you, you. The music you're going to hear now is bagpipe music. I was looking for something Scottish, but I found some Bulgarian bagpipes. And the group is called Kolyadniki from Krivorivnia. These people from a Carpathian mountain town sing magic songs every Christmas to ensure that spring comes again. They've been singing these songs since pre-Christian times. <laughs> Thank you. 
a message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. Medical professionals are our most trusted voices. And on the road to Glasgow tonight, we're going to hear from the Climate and Health Alliance about the public health catastrophe ahead. At a CAHA webinar, I noted that a lot of nurses and doctors didn't feel confident talking about climate impacts, which seem a bit wider than what they were trained for. But Rebecca Huntley told them, fossil fuel lobbyists are not so shy. They play fast and loose with the facts, but you can tell us the reality of our condition. And so I've invited Dr. Rob Eisenberg to talk to us on the road to Glasgow. He's Associate Professor of Public Health at Newcastle University. So he's right in the, you know, the coal country near the biggest coal exporting port of the world. He's also the founder of Vote Earth Now. So welcome, Rob. I'd like to set the scene. What's the surf like up at Newcastle? Oh, I'm glad you asked me. It's, it's a mess today, but it's usually <laughs> fantastic. And uh, I'm a keen surfer and it's one of the difficult things for me every day to look out to the horizon when I go for a surf and see a whole bunch of coal ships lined up to take our coal around the world and know that I'm living, you know, right in the, the hub of the problem. Yeah. Yes, well, for Australia, I think, yes. Hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment too much because life goes on. Those boats will stop one day. Well, um, no, I don't want them to stop. I want them to turn into boats transporting our green hydrogen exactly, around the yeah. world. That's right. Yes, they won't stop boats, but I mean more coal boats. <laughs> more boats. Um, <laughs> look, why do you think that letting government hear from us about climate action is so vital now, even to get them to lift their game before the Glasgow conference um, in November. You're in this Vote Earth now. So why is the voters' voice so important? Because uh, Australia is worst in the world for climate action right now, according to the United Nations Sustainability uh, Index for Climate Action. And we should be first. We should change that WO worst to FI first. Hmm. Uh, we have everything we need. I guess our government is scared and they need us to help them. And that's why uh, doctors uh, are leading the way as much as we can. I mean, the Climate Action Health Alliance has prepared a letter from all of the major medical colleges in Australia that has gone to the Prime Minister to take, you know, to take on board before Glasgow. But we actually need, as doctors, to encourage everybody in Australia to let politicians know they want climate act. Nine out of 10 Australians want the government to act on climate change. And the, the government does hear those surveys and things, but not as much as they hear votes. Yeah. If they hear they're going to lose their job if they don't do something, mm. that's a much bigger incentive. And that's why we created Vote Earth Now, so that voters could, within a minute and a few clicks, of their on their phone or their key, keyboard, let politicians know that they are going to be a climate voter at the next election. It's not saying I'm going to vote for this party or that party. It's saying that this this time around, I realise this is a climate emergency and this is possibly our last chance to get politicians who will fight the climate emergency for us. What do you mean with a few clicks? Is it something listeners could go to Vote Earth Now and yeah. find out which candidates are not supportive of climate action or how would they know? Exactly, exactly. So we've created this website called voteearthnow.com.au or voteearthnow.com and 
on the website, you can in, in a, you can have a look at how um, politicians have been acting by something called the Climate Action Score, where we have been scoring the members of parliament according to how they've been voting in parliament. The main way politicians act, like us, ironically, to vote. That's the main way they act. They're representing us in parliament. In between elections, they are voting for us on all these other issues and they are representing us. And if we don't tell them how we want to be represented, they're going to listen to the people who are in their ears. And we all know who's in their ears. Yeah, that's right. As Rebecca Huntley said, those fossil fuel lobbyists are crowding the corridors of power and not us. We're not there, shoutly. We're politely murmuring. The doctors should be there, but but we're we're too, as you said, we're by nature cautious and non-sensationalists and we want really strong evidence. We have the evidence, but now we... We need to create the platform for not just doctors, but for the patients that we talk to and who believe us to get that message to the politicians. And I guess we don't have the advantage the fossil fuel industry has of 50 years of experience at this and and all that money. But we do have the truth and we do have the internet. And uh, that's that's what Vote Earth now is letting people do. It's letting them actually on that website they can find out all this information. If they choose to, they can say, I'm a climate voter. And that's the important thing is to declare you're a climate voter, let your community know and let the politicians know. And we, within 30 seconds, you can do that. We've got okay. a, a button you click and the email goes to your local politician. Okay, listeners, so you heard it here. Vote Earth Now. Easy to find, click. <laughs> Easy to do. It's a different world that's coming and we need to prepare for it. And every day we lose... We're missing out on these public health opportunities, not to mention the economic opportunities that we're missing out every day. And, you know, we could be a renewable superpower and there'll be a lot of benefits to everybody if that happens, not just in the air quality around here Mm. where I live, but uh, the health benefits to all of the community. In my job every day, my my day job is as an ear, nose and throat, head and neck surgeon. And uh, I um, see people all the time with, sinus problems and you know i could be uh, giving them medicines and giving them operations but if the air was a bit cleaner that a lot of them would be so much better and these are yeah. chronic diseases and yeah. and every kind of doctor the, the main thing we deal with is chronic diseases not not um you know bushfires every day obviously 30 people died directly from the bushfires uh, last time but as you mentioned with mental health uh, in india when they had uh, drought that same year they had 60,000 extra suicides they wouldn't have had otherwise. So this, mm. so the mental health effects are huge. And, and for me as a father, the mental effects I've seen, and this is why I've become so activated in this area, is my daughters came to me. I got climate anxiety myself after the 2019 uh, drought and bushfires and surfing with ash falling all around me and watching helicopters dredge water out of the lake and drop it on bushfires. It was very traumatic for me. I couldn't sleep. And and my daughters came to me and they said, look, we can't be bringing children into a world that's going to be like this. And and cognitive behavioural therapy and medications are not the answer. The best answer to this anxiety is to fight climate change. That's why I mentioned courage, because people talk about hope, but I think we just need to be like in the wartime, people in the blitz. You have to channel your resources of courage. And I think coming from doctors, that's how we're encouraged to face our own health, personal health crisis. You know, the doctor says you've got cancer. He doesn't say, this is hopeless, we're not going to do anything. He says, here's a plan, it might not work, you know, we'll try this, and you have to develop courage in that situation. And I think on a public health scheme, I don't know if we're giving enough messages to people. But look, let's go on about physical health. There's aspects of physical health. Over the years, I've interviewed a lot of people who worried about unborn babies, especially up in the Beetaloo Basin where they're planning to frack for gas and, and just the local impact on on already vulnerable mothers, young mothers, you know, their health is already vulnerable and then the, you know, having low birth weight babies. And on that CAHA survey, I noticed the midwives were the most concerned when it said who among the medical professionals who are the most concerned, I noticed it was midwives. You're exactly right. That that's a terrible mistake of an opportunity that our politicians have made with the Beetaloo Basin 
and there's going to be, unless that can be reversed, I don't know how, there's going to be terrible consequences for those people directly from what they're doing there. But the indirect consequences are terrible to us all of this continued policy and, and action of doing the wrong thing. And the fact that the two major parties, well, well the coalition and Labor, both voted on that legislation to proceed with all that fracking in the Beetaloo Basin is the biggest possible mistake we could be making. And, and they're their climate action scores on Boat Earth now have suffered as a result. Well, with Glasgow in mind, what would the medical sector like to tell the world about remote area health preparations? I'm thinking of, um, you know, those people in the Beetaloo Basin who will, if we export all of that gas, suffer much worse heat waves, you know, and other parts, you know, remote area people suffer worse floods even extending it to Pacific neighbours, you know, existential threat to the whole place they live in, the whole island disappearing or becoming unlivable. So, you know, I think those people at, at Glasgow are going to be wanting to know what are we going to do for them and what's the best model of health delivery? What do you think? Oh, the model of health delivery to remote communities is is uh, something I'm very involved in with Aboriginal ear health and it, there are many um, challenges that Australia is ex more expert on delivering remote healthcare to remote communities than other countries because of our the tyranny of distance in this country. And, and we have to face the reality, even with mobilising on a war footing now, some places are going to become unlivable. So I've, I've had patients uh, who, after the 2019, 2020 bushfires, had a year of difficulty breathing and we were trying to work out why had they had an exacerbation of their underlying respiratory disease, asthma. Was it uh, an exacerbation of you know, gastroesophageal reflux disease? And in the end, we decided it had to be because of the amount of smoke they had inhaled, these tiny particles, and there was no other explanation. And, uh, you know, so maybe we're going to be all wearing masks outside in the future if the air quality is deteriorating every time we have these horrendous bushfire seasons. So there's going to be a raft of different measures people are going to have to take to protect their health. One of them will be that with places becoming unlivable, people have to leave where they are and move to other places. This is going to create uh, major geopolitical issues with climate refugees, yeah. not least in Australia. So all the more reason to go for prevention now, isn't it? You know, this we keep pushing this off to the never-never. The prevention, which is so-called so expensive, is going to be much less expensive than the reality that's projected well, by the, every report. Yes. Well, the economists are telling us now that every day we delay to do stuff is costing us. That's why the banks are divesting themselves of fossil fuels. I'd like to know a bit more about direct action because um, nurses and midwives I know are exhausted with COVID already. They can't see how they can do any more. And yet this sector is taking on this long-term issue of climate action. And I've, I'm thinking of nurses I've seen up at Moles Creek, you know, to stop a forest being logged for a coal mine, linking arms with, you know, something written on their scrub saying I'm a I'm a pediatrician. They are, <laughs> they are heroes. That's right. I saw them. And they weren't arrested either up there. They, they arrested everybody else, but they didn't arrest them because one of the police apparently said, look, they're frontline workers like us and we're not going to arrest them. They didn't. But there was another case recently, Extinction Rebellion in London. Doctors all outside the Morgan Chase Bank, one of the biggest investors in fossil fuels, and they lay down, I think they stuck themselves to the pavement, which bit more painful, but they also had signs saying, I'm a paediatrician, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a registered nurse. And I just admire them. I admire them too, and I don't know how they find the energy and time after no. their jobs. And I think it's, it's you know, we should be so grateful to them and, and what they do does have a big effect. But you said immediate action and declaring that you are going to be a climate voter is immediate action. If yeah. you let the politicians know that now, 
that will give them an opportunity to act now. Yeah. Don't forget, you know, I don't mean to be alarmist or scary, but climate, the climate changes that are coming will kill and, you know, we will be on the front line again. Yeah. So we've been talking to Associate Professor Rob Eisenberg, and if you didn't get it through the interview, get it now. He's very keen that you join up or just even look at his website, which is called VoteEarthNow.com. Thank, Thank you, Vivian. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart, which 3CR Community Radio is right here at 85.5 a.m. So it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back, Australia, to the Earth. Peace with Earth. Thank you. Teokas and Ghost Horse. Community Radio is your love. You've heard of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Well, how about a Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty? It actually exists. We reported on it when the City of Sydney signed on, but now we're on the road to Glasgow, and I've invited the Treaty Initiative's Deputy Director to tell us how close we are to achieving it. Rebecca Burns is a Rhodes Scholar with wide experience providing legal and strategy advice, and I'm especially interested in her work with the Least Developed Countries Group, and I hope we have a moment to talk about that as, as well, but now we're going on to the treaty. Welcome, Rebecca. Tell us about the treaty and how it will fit in at COP26. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I think the really interesting thing about the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty or the call for the treaty is that it really comes out of the fact that there isn't a space on the agenda in the climate negotiations to speak about fossil fuels or the production of fossil fuels. The way the Paris Agreement has been set up is it really leaves it in the hands of countries as to what climate targets they're going to set and how they achieve them, which is great in theory if countries you know, set targets that are ambitious enough and enact concrete plans to, to say this is how they're expecting to phase out, you know, to, to wind down their emissions, but we're not seeing that happen. And so um, the Paris Agreement doesn't mention coal, oil, gas or fossil fuels at all. Uh, and it means that there's very little space to actually talk about the concrete solutions um, associated with, with reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So the idea of the Fossil Fuel Treaty Initiative is to say, well, you know, the Paris Agreement is vitally important in setting the global goal in terms of what we want, the maximum possible warming that we want to sort of allow to happen um, to avoid catastrophic climate change. But we need a roadmap as to how we actually achieve that. And one of the simplest ways of doing that is by targeting emissions at the source, which is fossil fuels. And, and looking at how many fossil fuels are we actually digging out of the ground and therefore burning, and how can we start to wind that back? And so that's the idea of the Fossil Fuel Treaty. And we're hoping that through civil society engagement, we'll be able to put it on the agenda publicly at COP and then start to bring it into the negotiating room um, because it hasn't been there so far. Well, there's only a month before the COP26 and many of us, many of the listeners to this program will be putting pressure on our government. But the way it's all pitched by the media is 2050, you know, and this is so pathetic. And I saw one sign that said 2050 is too late and the, certainly the targets are too late and net is not good enough either. We want to go beyond that. And I think the main pressure will be to lower emissions. We'll be as if we'll be happy if they lower emissions. But your treaty focuses on stopping any expansion of our coal, oil, or gas production. So, how would you persuade, or ha have you had engagement with our, the Australian government to regulate fossil fuels in this way? It's almost unimaginable because we feel that they're still in the pockets of those industries. But you know, you're completely right that the focus on net zero in 2050 just isn't adequate at all, particularly for one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We can certainly do more than that. So we have had engagement with with some governments around the world so far, not as much as we would like with the Australian government. Um, as you as you highlighted, it's really a challenging conversation to have with them, this discussion around phasing out fossil fuels. There's a really strong reticence to to address that question. And the problem is that 
um, the way we account for emissions in Australia is we don't we ignore all of the fossil fuels that we export. So we, we like to pretend that we don't contribute much to climate change when we're one of the world's largest fossil fuel exporters um, and one of the largest coal producers. So it's really vitally important that we tackle this, but uh, it's, it's a really challenging conversation to have at the moment, which is why we're coming at it from several angles. So that's where our engagement with cities, for example, comes in. We've had some really great engagement with subnational governments, such as the Australian Capital Territory and then Sydney and some councils in Melbourne who have agreed with the call for a treaty and then agreed to help put upwards pressure on the Australian government. Uh, we've also had some engagement with uh, various MPs, not the coalition MPs, but um, independents and Greens at this stage have been you know, really actively kind of supporting the idea, which is really exciting to see. Um, and of course, the idea of the treaty is that it helps provide this top-down pressure on the government. You know, as other countries sign on and start to to accept that to reduce emissions, ultimately you need to stop digging the things out of the ground that cause those emissions. Then that helps to create pressure as well. So it's it's a long game, but where you know there are other countries around the world that are more advanced in the discussion, and we hope that Australia catches up quickly. I mean, it really is in our best interest. Um, as, a, as a country and for our economy to, to catch up. I imagine that the number of com- countries that export fossil fuels is quite a small club. And so the net weight of other countries who don't have any fossil fuels and who don't want this proliferation and don't want global warming could, in fact, tip the balance. Is, th- is there that sort of pressure already globally? Do you see that in those confer- any other conferences or at the United Nations or where? Yeah, no, it's a really great point. So that's something that we've been thinking about. Um, essentially, is there a capacity almost for a consumers club of countries to say, well, we're actually going to stop buying your fossil fuels and you won't have anywhere to sell them to because um, we're implementing our own climate targets. And I think whether or not that's formalised in an actual agreement, that's happening anyway. Um, and there's a real risk that Australia will end up with stranded assets. So we might continue investing in our coal and oil and gas infrastructure, but Ultimately, we're not going to have anywhere anyone to sell them to as as countries around the world start to reduce their reliance on those fossil fuels. Uh, an entry point into a treaty on fossil fuels would be to bring those consumers of fossil fuels who are importers at the moment together um, and to start to use their their power as essentially as consumers um, mm. to influence countries like Australia. So I think that's a real possibility. Yeah, I saw on your website like a lot of uh, parliamentarians from all sorts of countries. So they're not the whole party or the government of a country, but certain parliamentarians. So that's the chink in the armour, isn't it, I suppose? A group of elected officials from developing countries around the world who who decided to initiate this call for a, a fossil fuel free future, it's called. For many of them, they're based in countries that are severely impacted by climate change but also have limited capacity to phase out fossil fuels themselves or they're, they're not major producers themselves. So there's this sort of, um, you know, in a really challenging position. So I think it's been really exciting to see that led by, as you said, elected officials and parliamentarians that they, they may be in the government or they may not be, but they're, you know, representatives um, of their, their, their populations. And so um, at the moment, I think we've got around 100 uh, I think it's rapidly growing, though, so I'm sure we're going to have many more than that by the time we get to Glasgow. It started in the Global South. Now we've got um, a bunch of uh, parliamentarians. from. We've actually got all of the Australian Greens, which is exciting. Um, Andrew Wilkie has signed it. And we've also got you know a, a huge amount from the European Parliament, actually, as well. So even though we're not seeing European, um, you know, maybe their governments haven't yet come on board, although we're hopeful that many of them will. You know, it's really kind of like this the vanguard, I suppose, the, the first phase of, of people recognising that this is um, this is a thing to do and it's really led by leaders in the global south. So I think that's been really exciting to see. Yeah, well, look, there was a, a United Nations report called The Production Gap and it said that you need to dis- see a decline in global fossil fuel production by about 6% per annum since last year. So every year, 6% less. Yet that industry as a whole is set and fully planning, including USA and Canada, fully planning to advance their production by 2%. So they're nowhere near, you know, anything. They'll go to Glasgow and argue about their emissions at home and everything. But what they're doing in in so far as their production is throwing all of those targets out of the water. This needs to be exposed. Are you doing a lot of media on this? I mean, are you 
producing materials like this. I read that in an article by Fergus Green, which was in The Age, and he's been onto it for a few years. But I would like to see much more exposure of this is this is what you're actually really planning to do. Obviously, the companies in many cases are the ones doing the work, but they're doing it often with the full support and, in fact, the subsidisation from government. So government really has a role to play here. And as you said, that report shows that when countries really to, to have any chance of staying within 1.5 degrees, we need to be, on average, reducing fossil fuel production by 6% per year. But that number is actually much higher if you're a rich country and it's higher for coal as well. So Australia really needs to be doing a lot more than that. Um, and yet we see that countries around the world are planning. And this this is really looking, this report doesn't look at what companies are planning to do. It looks at what governments are planning for their countries. It's really, you know, countries are saying one thing with with one hand and doing something completely different with the other. So there will be actually a new report coming out, a new version of that production gap report coming out later this year before COP. So I think that will be really exciting and there'll be a lot of media around that. And I think uh, that will hopefully be a, a great way to really shed the light on this, this problem. I mean, it's very hypocritical, basically, to go into Glasgow and talk about um, countries' climate targets, while, on the other hand, they're still increasing production. And we'll certainly be doing a lot of media around around all of these issues. The thing that has been heartening is that over the course of this year, we've actually seen a lot of major stakeholders that in the past were quite reluctant to talk about the end of fossil fuels actually start to recognise that it needs to happen. And that includes, for example, the International Energy Agency finally, you know, essentially recognising we can't have any new fossil fuel projects. But we've also had research that shows it's not just that. We need to actually start planning to close down over time projects that already exist as well. Um, but the movement has grown. And, yeah, there's going to be a lot of noise around this at COP. We're actually harming the Australian economy if we continue to subsidise and rely on fossil fuels rather than helping it. Uh, hopefully we'll we'll start to shift the dial. And there are definitely uh, some, there are some positive signs. I mean, things that we've seen particularly recently, less on the subsidy side of things, but particularly on the export finance side of things, where countries like the UK and also China have made commitments around uh, reducing their investment in uh, in production and, and also generation of fossil fuels. The process of getting there is equally as important. All of the conversations and campaigning and the engagement with cities and the engagement with parliamentarians and everything mm. that happens on that journey also creates that kind of momentum for change. And so I think where even if the treaty um, takes, you know, a year or two years from this point to be to, to kind of uh, catalyze, it's all of those conversations are still, you know, creating that that pressure for change at the domestic level as well. Well, I certainly welcome it because just this new perception that it's the production of the fossil fuels, not just the emissions, that opens a lot of doors. So thank you for yeah, talking absolutely. to us about it. So that we've just been thank talking. Thank you so to much for having me. Thank you. It was Rebecca Burns, who is the director of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. You've been listening to the Climate Action Radio Show on 3CR or Radio Skid Row. If you liked it, please download the podcast and send it to a friend. Spread the number of people who really get it. We look at the downloads. It's the only feedback we really get. You can contact us at uh, Radio 3CR. The number is 039419 I'd like to thank the guests tonight who spoke to me, Violet Coco and Sasha Stainlaw from Extinction Rebellion. Their big action is coming up in October and you can go to their Facebook page or look up Extinction Rebellion Australia and find out where you can fit in. Also to Professor Rob Eisenberg and he would like us to take action by looking up his website which is Vote Earth Now and become a climate voter. Send a message right now to any of our politicians that you will be changing your vote this time round in terms of climate and you would like them to represent us in Glasgow with the most ambitious and most leading climate intentions. Also thank you to Rebecca Burns from a new organisation called Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's only been going for a year but it's a global organisation which has already gained huge momentum 
if you look up their website, I challenge you to find, you know, just fabulous interest in that. And you can talk about it to people, mention it also to politicians when you write to them. The music tonight, I was looking for bagpipe music from to remind us of Scotland and Glasgow, but I found some Bulgarian bagpipes called Kolyadniki. Thank you to them. Also, we'll go out with a song from Stuart Nugget to remind us of the Beetaloo Basin. I think if you want to support the people there, Central Australian people, very remote from Canberra, but likely to be the centre of a major fracking project that will, I think, ruin their lives, but certainly add hugely to the climate catastrophe we're creating. Um, his song is called Bunduru, and it's about food. A boy is, its first line is, boy is crying, hungry for food all the time, all the time. Girl is hungry, crying for food all the time, all the time. Mother, come back home. Mother, come back home. It's a very beautiful song. I hope you like it. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Wow.